Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Andrew Manning with Berkshire Hathaway Home Services in Sherman Oaks, California. Last year, he closed 61 transactions with a total sales volume of $68 million. His average sales price was $1.1 million, of which 25% were buyers and 75% were sellers. He has a five-member team, one buyer agent, one showing agent, one administrative assistant, one transaction coordinator, and one team leader. Andrew Manning has been an agent for 29 years and works in the Sherman Oaks, Los Angeles market. In his best year, he sold 58 homes worth $80 million. In this call, Andrew talks about starting part-time and getting three buyer clients at his first open house, his open house script to determine if a buyer has an agent, mentoring under a top agent in his office, the laugh-out-loud pre-listing price reduction technique, how to work with high-net-worth clients and celebrities, his action price plan for a quick sell at a maximum price, working with must-move clients, his red dot postcard that brings in listings, networking with business managers and inner circle advisors, how to get referrals from other agents in your area and across the nation, an informal marketing plan for past clients and sphere of influence, team dynamics, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Andrew. Thank you. Hey, Andrew. It's great to have you here. Andrew, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I did everything. I started, my first job was working at 31 Flavors when I was about 14, and I rode my skateboard there. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew I knew I was in trouble when the, by the time I was 16, I was, I was staff leader in charge of people that were in their 30s. <laughs> That didn't go over too well. I decided I needed to advance. So I I moved on to retail. And I worked at uh, Saks Fifth Avenue near my house for a couple years in high school and started college. And then I ended up working in college. I worked for a a family law firm, which actually started some of my connections early on because I met some of the secretaries that worked for some big family law attorneys that handled divorces and all kinds of stuff. So later on, I sold several houses to them and their kids and, and clients and, and through one of the secretaries in that office. One of my funny stories is I used to work the closing shift at night, do the mail, do everybody's banking, dry cleaning, setting up conferences, organizing the whole place. And there was one woman at night who kind of slipped into the bathroom and came out in these evening gowns. And I thought maybe she was a, a, uh, 
a night worker of some sort, and I, I had to ask her one day, I've got to know where you go at night when you dress up several times a week, and she told me her husband was a big entertainment business manager, and they had all these functions and premieres to go to. This is almost 30 years later. Her husband became one of my biggest clients and one of my biggest referral sources for, for business with a lot of uh, people in the entertainment industry. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Took it from there, yeah. And at the same time I was doing that job, I worked uh, during the Olympics in Los Angeles. I got a, a job through UCLA where I went working for Anheuser-Busch, escorting uh, executives and picking them up at the airport and taking them to Olympic events, and that was quite fun. But the next year I went and I got to, decided to get my real estate license. Since I, I like cars and houses, and I figured I wasn't going to make much money selling cars, so it was time to, time to move on. So what made you decide to move into real estate? Did you know somebody in real estate or what motivated you to go that direction? It's another funny story. My parents were real estate investors in, in a, mainly apartment buildings and my mom would was kind of boots on the ground and would, you know, do wallpaper and paint and, and carpeting herself. It was very handy. And uh, I watched that for years as a kid and they bought and sold several multi-unit buildings and, and a few houses. And in the process, they had a couple of guys who were their realtors who were a couple, and I, these guys became family friends, and they were always coming over, and they were driving Mercedes convertibles, and they were always in Hawaii, and I thought, okay, what are these guys doing? I think this is what I need to be doing when I grow up. <laughs> and that, as shallow as it sounds, that's how it started. <laughs> when you started, did you start full-time or part-time? I started, I was working the law firm job, finishing college and starting real estate all at the same time. So I was afraid to let go of any one of those. I wanted to finish school. So my last year of college, I got my license going to real estate school at night. I got my license at night and then also working in the part-time job after school. So I took early classes in the morning, then did the job, and then went to real estate school at night. So I have packed it all in there that last year. And then finally, I was, I was reticent to let go of my job, but my, my very first open house, I sat by myself. Three different people came in without brokers and they all wanted to buy the same house and I freaked out, didn't know what I was going to do. But I ended up selling all three of those people houses, one of them that house and one another house about a month later and the third person took two and a half years, but I didn't let go. Wow. Yeah. Started out with mainly buyers because when you start out, you don't really have you know many sources for for listing referrals. So I started out with buyers and, and working the open house circuit because I I became, you know, or I was personable and I was shy as a kid, but kind of came out on my own doing all these personal service jobs and working with the public and decided I loved the open houses. So I would always, uh, the way I actually got started was people would come in and I decided I needed a gimmick to get them to talk. So when people came in and they were nervous that you were trying to sell them something, I, my first question I would ask would be, oh, how long have you been looking and are you working with the broker? And they would always say, almost always say yes. And I would, so I would follow that question with, and who is your broker? And, and half the time they would stumble because they probably either didn't have a broker or they, or they sometimes don't even know their broker's name. So when they stumbled, didn't know, I said, wow, it sounds like that's a really good relationship. You don't even know their name. And then they would usually laugh if they had a sense of humor. And I'd say, well, if, if you do learn their name and it works out great, but if you don't and you decide it's not working, here's my card and I'd be happy to help you. And I probably got several dozen clients that way in the beginning just by being kind of low pressure and trying to break the ice a little bit and gave my card and said, look, you know, no pressure. I know the neighborhood. If you'd like some help, you know, 
this is me. And, you know, it, it worked well for me over the years. And if they did mention a broker's name, this was the other thing that kind of started me on my, my most important thing, which is my reputation, was I didn't know anybody in the business. So if I went out there and they said, yes, my, my broker Sally Jones, and I would say, oh, Sally is terrific. I love Sally. Please tell her I said hello, and I'd give him my card. So half the time, those brokers assumed that they knew me, and they would call me up and say, I just want to thank you for saying such nice things about me to my client. I really appreciate it. And says, I feel like I know you. Do I know you? <laughs> I'm saying, it's like, oh, we've probably seen each other on Caravan or something. But I actually made many friends that way but that I still to this day have never told that I did not know them. But they assumed that they knew me because I said such nice things about them. And it created, started my reputation and then, oh, he's the nicest guy and he always is, you know, never has a bad thing to say about anybody and, and that type of thing. But it really worked well for me in the beginning. Well, it sounds like you had a fast start in real estate, and it was based on open houses. Do you continue to do open houses today? I like to. You know, it it gets harder when you get busier, but I really like to do the – if I have a new property, I really enjoy for – for multitude of reasons, doing at least the first one or two brokers opens because it's a very social thing, as we all know. So I like seeing the brokers, talking to them, and, and they know me well enough to know that I, I appreciate honest feedback. I don't, you know, need somebody to sugarcoat anything for me if they think it's overpriced or they hate it or they have, you know, complaints that I could gently bring back to the seller. I want to know about those things, and I like to get the in the streets feedback so I can pass that on to the seller. I also like to to be in the very beginning when the when the listing's fresh, I like to be very involved in that. And I also find it's a great source of future listing business because a lot of those people that come in are neighbors. So you have to be so careful how you treat people that are walking in the door because they may look like nothing and it could be the next door neighbor or the daughter of the next door neighbor that whose mother might be going into a home or moving out of the area and you just never know where your next listing's coming from. So I'm always very careful about treating everybody equally when they come into an open house. How long have you been in real estate? This is my 29th year this year. Sounds like I should be 100 when I say that, but, <laughs> but yeah, I started, started early. I think I, they used to call me kid, and, and I used to get the whole, uh, every time I'd go somewhere, they'd be like, oh, you look too young, you know, you don't look like you really know what you're doing, and I, and I used to get that for a long time. I don't, unfortunately, you don't get that anymore, but I, I did get that for quite a while, and so I had to sort of prove myself in the, in the beginning. How many homes did you sell last year? I believe we were uh, 61 last year. Do you remember the sales volume? 68 million last year. Wow, that is fantastic. It was a lot. It was interesting. I sold a few more last year. The year before was my best year, but uh, sold a couple less houses, but had a a couple of large sales in there and a a couple of double-end deals of of large volume that helped me push the numbers up there. But 2013 was my best year, but last year, not too bad. I can't complain. Tell us what your numbers were for 2013, your best year. How many homes did you sell in your sales volume? 2013, it was 58 houses, but, but $80 million, which was unbelievable. Somebody in my office when I first started, because taking it back to the dark ages when I started, you didn't have internet, you didn't have computers in the office, you had you know phone messages on slips. I remember shortly after I started, we got voicemail, which was revolutionary because front door of our office used to open and all these paper slips if it was a windy day would blow all over the office and people would scramble trying to find your messages you know you'd go to lunch and you'd pull your slot out to see if anybody called you'd have pieces of paper in there so that's we've come a long way but but that was it was interesting in, the, in those dark ages before that I had a gentleman that sat in front of me and he was very 
type AAA, and he had this chart, and I would watch him, and every time he would close an escrow, he would write the property address down, what the price of the house was, the amount of his commission check, and he would keep a running total of of how much money he was making in like an early goal-setting type thing. So I did that for years and years. And unfortunately, getting super busy, I, I probably should do it. It would be motivational, but now I don't do it. So I could be six months into the year and have no idea what's going on as far as how many houses I've sold or, or what commission income I paid. Half the time, I don't really pay attention to it until maybe the middle of the year. Andrew, you said that 2013 was your best year. And if I understand correctly, you were honored in 2013 by being the the number two agent nationwide for Berkshire Hathaway Home Services out of about 50,000 agents. Is that true? That's true. It was pretty wild because I knew I was up there, but they don't tell you until... Until, you know, basically they do the presentation on, on stage at the at the national convention, which I, I, I hadn't worked for a big company before, originally Prudential, then Berkshire Hathaway, but I hadn't worked for big companies before in the beginning. So going to national conventions was a new new experience. But I actually love the networking aspect of it and, and always like going to cities I haven't been to before. So it happened to be in Nashville, and it was a fascinating city, but a great time. So somebody said to me, one of the executives said, oh, you're – you know, you're in the top 10. I said, no, I don't know that I'm in the top 10. I said, I figured, well, there must be like a 10-way tie for 10. I figured because there were a lot of people doing a lot of business, but they they categorize things differently because there are people with these massive teams of, you know, 15, 20 people. The, I think the top person in our company was a couple of ladies in, in Vegas, young women in their, I think, mid-30s who who have a team, but it's like 28 people on the team and multiple for buyer's agents. And, you know, they were making over $6 million and they were the number one team in the, in the country. But I think by the time they whittle it down to paying all these people, I don't know how that all breaks down. And it's got to be like running a, a corporation, having 28 eight people working for you. But yeah, I was the, the number, the number one gentleman in our company is a very nice, uh, shy, quiet guy who happens to do super high volume, but low sales. I believe the number one individual agent in the, and the company was out of our, our Brentwood office, and he also, his brother's a big entertainment manager, gets a lot of entertainment business, but his average you know, sales price might be 3 or $4 million, and I think he made 25 sales and you know, made over $5 million, so that's pretty impressive numbers. Low, low volume and high commission would be wonderful, but it's probably not realistic for most people. Let's step back for a minute and make sure everybody knows where you're at. Where is Sherman Oaks, California? So Sherman Oaks, California is actually in kind of what is now borderline east to central San Fernando Valley. So we are sort of nicely situated between uh, Universal Studios for for people in other areas that usually can relate to that. We're between Universal Studios and what would be the uh, Calabasas Hidden Hills area. We're kind of equally distant between there, which is where the Kardashians live and all these crazy celebrities out there. So we're, we're kind of nicely sandwiched in, in this pocket, which is sort of mainly, a, I would say, middle upper middle class. And then our areas in my market area, there's a, a main street called Ventura Boulevard. And when you get south of Ventura Boulevard, those are higher end product. And we're between sort of Studio City, Sherman Oaks, Encino, Tarzana, Woodland Hills, Calabasas. That's my main sort of drag of, of marketing in there. And, and average prices in those areas tend to be, you know, just to relate, a, a, it's quite expensive, but for your, your two-bedroom 
your two bedroom or two bedroom in a den house is probably, you know, in my market area is probably, you know, 700,000 range or so for a basic starter house in the good neighborhoods. And we have a lot of builder development where builders are paying it's a decent sized piece of property, which in those neighborhoods might be only seven or 8,000 square feet on a lot. They're paying, you know, an average of 900 to a million two for houses that they're tearing down and in these neighborhoods and building two and a half to, to three million dollar spec homes, which are, are going in my market area. I think currently there's about about 40 new construction homes of that price range under construction now. You're part of the L.A. County, Los Angeles County. Is that correct? Yes. Sorry, I didn't make that clear. Yeah, we're we're part of Los Angeles County. Basically, we're 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 in my office is in Sherman Oaks. We are directly as the as the crow flies about. We're only about maybe six or seven miles due north of, of Beverly Hills over the mountain range. So we have several commuter canyons that cut through from the San Fernando Valley that drop you into Beverly Hills, Hollywood, West Hollywood, Century City. Those type of neighborhoods that a lot of people are familiar with, and what we call our our west side of Los Angeles. Do you know the population in the market area that you're working? I think the area that we're working, it's about 7 million people. I mean, not my immediate market area, but the San Fernando Valley itself is quite large. Los Angeles County, I think, is up to about 11 million people now. But of the San Fernando Valley, it's quite big. It may be 5 to 7. I don't have the exact number at my fingertips, but it's quite large. And also, it depends on how far out you define it, because... Our borders, like our, our cities and many of our real estate neighborhoods, the, the, the neighborhoods and the city names tend to transition and borders move, <laughs> move around quite frequently. I think that we figured out that last year your average sales price was around $1.1 million. What is the variation in range? What's the, the smallest properties sold price-wise and the highest? Of course, it'd be all wonderful to be selling multi-million dollar houses all day long, but I find that that the, the public tends to be much nicer and more cooperative in the, the lower the price range goes than the higher. There's great expectations with your with your high net worth clients and their properties because they expect to be treated a certain way and you have to make them feel like they're number one priority. So it's it's quite a bit of maintenance with, with these larger properties. But I think I, I think the lowest thing I sold, I sold a lot that was about twenty five thousand dollars on a very steep hillside in the Studio City area. It was ridiculous, and it was part of a package deal with some other lots, but that was the least expensive thing I sold last year. And then I sold a uh, home in Toluca Lake that was uh, a celebrity couple that was getting divorced that was $5 million. That was my most expensive sale. But but average is going to be you know around a million, but I do quite a bit of things in the... In the sixes, sevens, eights, nines in there. But I think when I averaged it all out, it came out to just under a million one. Andrew, do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? I'm kind of known mainly for, for that South of Ventura area and those nicer nicer neighborhoods because I've been doing it so long that people know me. In fact, I, I, I go to the market and it's like everybody thinks they're related to me or they, they know me in some way. So it's, it sounds ridiculous to you know call it celebrity, but I think people, people recognize you. And then once they realize who you are 
everybody wants to know how the market is. They only make it. I could just be in gym shorts and going to the market, and I guarantee you in my neighborhood, I, I will run into at least two to three people I know, either clients or, or people that would recognize me and say, oh, or I recognize them, and we look at each other, and I'm thinking, I know this woman from somewhere, but I can't remember, so I just smile and wave. <laughs> but uh, it's, pre- it's pretty funny, but I'm known for those neighborhoods, and in fact, I do have it with for the brokers. It's interesting because another sidebar that, that has become very popular for me is that I'm known for aggressive pricing outside of the estate market, but uh, but in the in the main range marketplace, I'm known for for what I call my action pricing plan, where where if I get a seller that's cooperative, I will come in and I will do everything from from getting their house together, organizing you know paint cleanup staging decluttering everything. I have a, uh, my partner, Steve will come in there and he's kind of a in-house designer. So he'll come in and sort everything out. And if you get the cooperative client, we've had a couple recently that were perfect where they just listen to whatever you say, get the staging done, get the place painted, get good photography. I have excellent photographers, which I think is so important and getting them in there. Typical example was one we recently did where the people said, we're not taking a dime less than 700. I said, no problem, but we have to price the house at 699. And they're like, but but then people are going to want to take off. I said, no, this is what we do. I, I knew that it was worth more than 700. So I said, let's put it at 699. We very nicely put in the multiple, our open house dates. I do a, uh, in our market area, Tuesdays and Fridays are the broker open date. So I load the listing on a Monday. I will have it open Tuesday and Friday, 11 to 2, which are the maximum open house hours that we have. And then if the house is vacant, I'll do it both a Saturday and a Sunday open house myself that first week. And in the MLS and the broker's notes, we will put all offers will be considered beginning Monday following the seven days after submission to the MLS. And it works like a charm. If, you, if you, it's priced right and the house is in great condition, that 699 one I did recently, the people, I had to fight them a little bit on it, but I said, just go with me. And of course, we ended up with nine offers and it sold for 737.5 with overbids and they were ecstatic. In fact, they, they wrote me a letter saying how excited they were and, and how glad they were they had listened to me and I've already gotten two referrals from that from that plan so far. And I have another 699 that just came out yesterday, which brokers came in and they're like, my God, this is the best price thing that's come on the market. We looked at several things that are at 800000 that weren't even half as nice as this house. So that 699 is probably going to sell for 750 or more with, with the identical plan. And it actually, what I tell the sellers, is it actually prevents the most dangerous thing from happening, which is letting your days on market spiral out of control and get away from you because a buyer coming in does not know that someone may or may not offer more money because the first question everybody asks when they like a house is how long has it been on the market? They have all of the other information available online. In the beginning, you say this is our first open house, far less likely that they're going to come in under. And when they see that kind of activity going on at open houses, it psychologically prepares them for the, for the multiple offer bid and for, for an overbid that's going to make the seller happy. So you do kind of like a seven-day teaser, a pre-listing open or a group of pre-listing opens to tease the market a little bit before you'll accept an offer. Exactly. I'll do like a coming soon flyer where I'll, where I'll take the, I'll do the photography in advance because I can't, for, for agents that are out there, I don't care if you're starting out in the business and you can't afford to spend a fortune on photography. I don't care what the price range of the house is and I don't care if it's a lease or it's, or it's a sale 
the, the one major flaw that I see in our industry is agents in all price ranges all over the country and all over the world using their cell phone camera or using bad photography or just not having the house ready, terrible lighting. Your point of entry probably in our marketplace, I think it's something like over 95% of first views are happening online for property of all price ranges. And when you go on there and you see the shadowy and the sun splashed things and the and the bed unmade or the dirty laundry on the, I mean, we've all seen them when you go online, you just cannot believe. It doesn't even matter if it's 50,000 or 5 million. I mean, get yourself a photographer and spend the money because the listing is going to sell with good photography. Pricing, obviously the most important, but that photography is a short second right behind it. The seven-day teaser that you're doing with the flyer in the open, how do you make sure that the brokers don't bring you an offer anyway? Do you have that problem where a broker will bring you an offer before your open date? I tell them they're welcome to send an offer at any time because I don't want to, you know, ethically, I don't want to discourage somebody from writing any kind of an offer. But I said, you're welcome to, to send an offer anytime you'd like. But, you know, we are not going to begin to look at them until Monday. This this last one that I have going on right now, we actually sent the, it was a trustee that parents passed away and the only daughter. So we sent her, not paid for it, but we sent her on a cruise. She was going anyway, but we said, go on your cruise to Mexico with her husband. They were taking a mini vacation. I said, go on your carnival cruise. And when you come back, you know, Sunday night, we're going to have things to talk about on Monday. And they were fine. They listened to everything, the house, spick and span. And I just tell the brokers in advance, you're welcome to turn them in. Clients out of town in this case, which is true. And, you know, we'll be reviewing offers beginning Monday. I don't like to put a time clock on it, like it has to be by noon, you know, and then everybody's scrambling and asking for more time. So just say, we're going to start to look at them on Monday. That way we can see what we have, counter those offers. And while we have a multiple counter process going, it's still open for somebody else to come in. But but in my experience, it's usually, if you can get them to condition and price are optimal, it's like the quiet storm. It boils itself up like a percolator and you can have your house in escrow within a week to 10 days max. Sounds like another part of that strategy is to price the property just slightly below where you think it's going to sell. Exactly. Create a multiple offer situation, which will hopefully push the price above where where you originally thought it was going to be. And now you have the validation for the appraiser that this is the true value of the property. Exactly. In fact, the other thing that's important to note for people too is sellers, the question they get all the time is when they're hesitant about that plan. And you do have to be careful, too, because if you have a, a seller that's not willing to play that game and go with that plan, and I can catch on pretty quick if they're not, I'll usually give them two pricing structures. I'll call it like, this is my action pricing model, and this is how I would see the scenario playing out. But if they really can't get it and you really want the listing, it's fine to go higher to a point where you know you'll still sell it, but it'll be a more traditional plan where you'll be pricing a little higher and sort of waiting for offers to come in under that. So I don't like to push them so hard that, you know, you're going to lose the listing. So I try to give them two options. And then what I will do is I will actually bring with me on a listing appointment photographs of these homes and how we've made them look, what we priced them at, what the days on market were, you know, what the procedure was, what the overbids were, how long it took. And I'll put visually right in front of them the flyers to show, look, here's seven houses that I've done in the last six months that had this exact plan and that's how it worked. Usually you have different price ranges so they don't think that it's only inherent to a particularly priced property because it's difficult. The higher the price goes, the more 
less likely that's going to happen because your your buyer pool obviously shrinks as the price goes up. So this is not something that we're doing with you know two, two or three million dollar houses. This is mainly something that's going to happen in your sort of in my marketplace would be in your under under million five properties. It's it's relatively easy to do if you can get that that pricing structure in in place. So this works in the middle of the market pricing wise. You mentioned it doesn't work in the upper end as well. This strategy. What about as far as the market movement, for instance, it's been very hot. You're in a seller's market right now. There are a lot of buyers, so this is creating good anticipation. Have you tried the strategy in a slower market, either a normal market or a buyer's market, and did it work? I've tried it when because I've been through a few of these hills and valleys in the marketplace. It's much less dramatic of a process in in a bad market because I, I remember l- luckily the I only had one knock on wood one bad year in real estate and and it was 1991 <laughs> and I was a newer a newer agent I hadn't been through a down market before and I remember I was sitting at an open house one day and this would have been a house that was it was a one of my clients who was doing a redo it was completely remodeled I'm sitting at an open house one Sunday and it was extremely slow Nobody's coming. And then I realized it was weird. The whole week went by, and I found myself there for a second Sunday the next week, and I thought, what's going on? I don't remember the last time I sat in open house two Sundays in a row before it didn't sell somewhere in between. <laughs> so I knew knew something was changing, but that, that house ended up sitting there, and then I, had, I hadn't done a price reduction in so long. I, I spent so much time as one of my best clients, but I spent so much time on this one property and trying to figure out, along with other agents at the time, what was really going on, and then you know, getting very depressed about <laughs> the marketplace and the fact that nothing was happening. I remember in 1991, I had probably 10 listings that weren't selling, and when you multiply that scenario by 10, and then all of a sudden the calls start coming with the complainers, and how come my house isn't selling, and you must not be doing something right, and you know, we need to advertise in Russia and China, and you know, all that stuff, and all the the paper advertising that was uh, costing a, a fortune at the time. And so you're spending money, but you're not making money. I mean, I was very disenchanted and a bit freaked out at, at that time, realizing what was going on. And it was just, it was a horrible year until I finally caught on and realized, hey, when these articles started coming out and following the news trends and realizing that prices were going down, I hadn't heard of that before. I, I came in in 1986 on an upswing, so it was, you know, I kind of jumped on the wave. But this was the first time we were coming down the escalator, so I had to adjust to that and followed it in the next down market, too, where I, I said to people when I would go on a listing appointment, I would be like, that multiple offer scenario is less likely because your buyer mentality in that type of a market is thinking, gee, if the house is $100,000 today and it's going down, it's going to be worth 95 tomorrow and 90 by the end of the week. So if somebody really had a need to sell, then I was jumping ahead of the game and telling them, look, we need to price your house six months ahead of the market, which would be dropping it well below the comps if you really want to sell it. That's the only way to get people excited. So it wasn't doing 10 or 20,000 below. I mean, I was suggesting people go 30, 40,000 below their marketplace in the four or five hundred thousand dollar price range, which was shocking at the time, and I lost a lot of listings from it. But then I saw a lot of these houses sit there, and that's when I started to work with a lot of expired listings and people who agents who were just buying listings and coming in and telling them whatever number they heard, and then chasing the market down. So when you had those houses that were reduced multiple times, they start to get a black mark on it, and and sometimes there's nothing wrong with the house but the price. And so what happened is I ended up coming back as the, uh, the, the, the old expression was, it's better to be the 
firstborn son, the second wife, and the third broker. That was my, <laughs> my plan at the time. <laughs> because I came in there and I was like, you know what, I don't even want it the second time around. I'm going to wait till the third time. So I started working expireds mainly in my marketplace. And I worked them not only for my own listing appointments, but I would follow them and see brokers list properties. And I would go look at it and say, but this is way overpriced. This is not going to sell. I'm going to track this one. And I would track these houses. In the old days, you used to be able to tell when the listing expired. Now that information is not as readily available to most people on the computer. But in the old days, you had to publish that. And what we had is our listing sheets. And it would tell you when the listing expired. And boy, I would sit right on the edge of the fence. And I would have a letter on their doorstep the morning that that listing expired to come talk to them. And sometimes it worked great when you were coming back for the second time and you had been the first guy in, give him a lower number. And now oftentimes their current asking price was less than you advised them three or six months prior. If they really needed to sell or they were ready to move, you had the stage and you were ready to go. You could basically tell them whatever you want and get that house sold. And that was, I haven't seen that in a long time, but that worked very well for me. And I started to become known as like the second or third time around broker. They'd be like, wow, you got them to really get this price down. You know, even other agents that had the listing would come in and say, wow, I wish I could have gotten them. They really listened to you. They wouldn't listen to me. Like sometimes it's better to be to be that second or third one than the first one. You know, in this market, luckily you you want to get in there as the first one with the right price. But luckily, the market is still good. It's just it's very challenging because it's a lot of competition in our marketplaces. I'm sure there are in other people's, but I really pride myself on my reputation, so I don't like to step on people. And I've probably helped more people sell houses to their own clients versus stealing clients away from people because that's so important to me. I can't stand when people, you know, step on other people in their own marketplace that you know you're going to be dealing with every day and they're stealing clients and and doing things that I would consider very unethical. It's it's not the way I operate. Andrew, what I pulled out from that is a a lesson here that, that you learned and maybe we can share with everyone else is that if you're in a downward moving market, you want to be very, very tight on pricing and risk the possibility of not getting the listing because you're going to price at market or below to follow that escalator down, as you mentioned. In an upward moving market, do you handle it the same way? Do you price at market? Are you willing to expand a little bit and try to shoot above it? You said six months ahead of the market was what you used as a strategy in a downward moving market. Yeah, when it was going down, I mean, it's it's such a psychological market and it works with every price range because it, you know, I always liken it to the designer suit or dress on sale in the store. It's like if someone's looking at it and it's, is it $500 or is, or is it, you know, Four ninety nine, and it sounds so stupid, but that's why we have all these just under the cusp price models. And when I go in there, it, it drives me crazy when I see somebody they've listed a house at two oh nine instead of one ninety nine. I mean, two oh nine is so such a stupid price. It should be one ninety nine if it's you know three ninety nine versus four oh nine or four nineteen. It's like you're going to get such much more reaction because most of these people, I'm sure, across the country, when you're working with buyers, you know, it's gotten a little bit lazy for a lot of these brokers that deal mainly with buyers because it's so easy to put your client on a on an online search field. But the number one criteria in that online search field is price. So what's happened, you know, when I first started using that formula, oh, this is great. I'm just going to plug in the buyers that I have their information. They'll call me when they find a house, you know, but it, it tends to make you a little bit lazy because it just goes into the system and the buyer calls you or sends you an email. Hey, I want to see this one and that one and that one. I'm like, great, let's go see them, you know, <laughs> put, put them on there. But it's all by price. So these agents that 
overpriced. If someone's looking up to 500 and you're priced at 509 or 515, you're losing half your marketplace. Because as I tell clients, especially listers, I will tell them and my, my selling clients, I will say, look, I said, I have never met one buyer that said I was looking for a house for 300000 but I found one for 225 I said, it's always you start at a certain price and then you inch your way up the ladder. And I said, what do you want as a seller is you want that person to find your house early in the game. You don't want to be reducing your price and chasing the buyer that's climbing the ladder. You want to hit them when they're right coming up to your price point. So that's why I always try to get them into that next uh, century, as I call it, down into the next price category. So you're more competitive because you, you really want to be the best product, the best listing in your price range. And that's how you're going to get the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time. Andrew, it sounds to me like you sell luxury homes in your market. How would you define a luxury home? It's interesting because unfortunately in our marketplace, a you know, a million-dollar house is not really considered a luxury home. In fact, a lot of the homes that are, you know, a million dollars in our price point, if they're in a good neighborhood, could be beautiful and charming and, and lovely, but they're looked at as more valuable as a teardown because of, of what's going on in most of these neighborhoods. But probably our luxury price point, I'm just uh, going this weekend to La Quinta, where we have our Berkshire Hathaway luxury properties, you know, annual conference, and it's really interesting. I'm the only... Uh, agent in the San Fernando Valley that's a director. I started the, the division with a bunch of other agents from the company just to pool our resources with marketing and directing You know how we're going to help each other through this. And it's basically agents from San Diego to north of Santa Barbara in our company that we all get together and do this thing once a year. It's quite interesting. It's a smaller group of probably maybe 150 to 200 people that get together and, and go through this stuff. But we have our, our pricing criteria for different neighborhoods, and it's quite interesting because most of the neighborhoods that we're dealing in are San Fernando Valleys, probably at the lower end of this price point. So in our in our luxury property division, uh, as crazy as it's going to sound to most people, you know, a million seven fifty is the minimum criteria for, for a luxury designate property. In my neighborhood, if you pop over to Beverly Hills, they've they've actually raised theirs to three million dollars. So you're not even considered luxury until you go over three million. And in Malibu, I believe in the Malibu area, it's five million because this crazy beach communities. You know, it's it's all funny money over there. But even five million doesn't get you that nice of a house, which is absolutely ridiculous, but true. Why did you decide to sell luxury homes? I was always interested in, in nicer homes, and I found that. With a higher price point, obviously, it's, it's more client contact, more, you know, more hand-holding, more everything with the, with the higher price point. But I think when I sold my first house, I, the, there was a community called Tarzana near us, and, and I trained underneath this wonderful woman who was the top agent in my office when I started. And I, I basically, I didn't have anything to do when I started working in real estate. You, know, you sat down at your desk, you had a phone and a desk, and, and you sat there, and I'm like, okay, everybody's very busy, but I don't really have anything to do. So what I decided to do was I pretended to be on the phone, but I listened. And I think that's the most important thing. I sat very close to this woman who was the top agent. And I thought, well, I'm just going to listen to whatever she's doing because I'm going to you know, learn in the streets here, see what's going on. So I volunteered to sit open houses with her just to help her to watch and see how she handled people and, and kind of emulated a lot of my business on that. I didn't like the way she did some things, but I liked the way she did most of the things. So I took her on a listing appointment. I got my first 
listing referral, which, you know, I'm a young kid in my early 20s. I got a listing referral for a house that was over a million dollars in this community of Tarzana that didn't have any houses that were over a million dollars, but it was a custom build. And I watched her go in on this listing appointment with the only thing she brought with her was a bunch of fancy house brochures with sold stickers on them. That was her entire listing appointment. And she walked in. She happened to be, you know, the granddaughter of a, of a famous director. So she had some Hollywood connections. So she came in there. The people were very impressed because her name was everywhere at the time. So we came in, older couple. And my, one of my favorite funny stories was we walked in and she just looked around the house, complimented everybody and everything, sat down in the living room. And she says, so what do you think you want for your house? And the husband and wife looked at each other and they said, well, that's kind of why we have you here because, because you know, we want you to tell us. And, and she said, well, you built the house and you know what you have into it and, and you must have some kind of idea of what you think it's worth. And the husband hemmed and hawed and she says, oh, come on, I know you're, you're dying to tell me, so why don't you tell me what you'd like for your house? So the guy said, well, we were thinking about, you know, we wanted to ask, uh, you know, a million five fifty. And so... She, I won't do it on the phone because it'll deafen people, but she let out with a cackle and a guffaw and started howling, slapping her leg, laughing out loud. And I'm sitting there with my eyes wide open, just in shock. I can't believe she's laughing at these people. She says, you are hysterical. No, really, what do you really want for your house? And he says, well, a million four fifty. And then she starts up with a hysterical laughing again. So he says, well, what do you think about a million three fifty? And she says, well, that sounds better. Sign here. I've got it all filled out. Fill out the million three fifty. We'll have the photographer out on Tuesday, and we're ready to go. I was like, I couldn't believe. It. I said she. Go, I called it a, a two hundred thousand dollar pre-listing price reduction. <laughs> <laughs> so I was so impressed with that. I said she brought nothing with her but these brochures with a bunch of sold signs. She slapped on the table. She laughed her way through getting it down to the price she thought. And I think we sold it for a million two seventy five or two fifty. And which was a record-breaking sale for the time. And so we did quite a bit of business together. I think that was the first time she laughed through it, but I was so stunned. I was like, okay, I guess there are different ways of handling things. So <laughs> my sense of humor has been very helpful for me, you know, in my business dealings because you really have to, to break the stress with some of these deals. It's a very stressful time that you're dealing with people. It's, you know, it's usually their primary asset. And I don't care how much money people have or don't have. It gets very tentative and very, very dicey when you get in there with when it comes down to money. Andrew, have you used the pre-listing laughing price reduction strategy? <laughs> I actually have with some people who I know were throwing out ridiculous numbers. Like, like I will, I'm not as, as loud as she did, but sometimes I'll be, like, I'll be like, you know, Jerry, come on. I said, do you really want to sell this house or are we just doing this? Well, one of my classic lines I've, I, I use occasionally was I tell people, I said, you know what? I said, if we want to use that price, I said, I have a special sign in my trunk I can put up in front of your house that says, just kidding, not really for sale. I mean, because <laughs> at that number, you are kidding. You're not really for sale. I mean, it's fine to be a little high, but if you're going to be outrageously high, and we've all seen these listings in all markets and all price ranges where the neighborhood price is 250 and you've got the same house and you decide you want 495 you know it's not going to sell. So it's like that's the kind of time when it's time to, to see if you can get people to, to loosen up a little bit and find out what their real story is. Because the most important thing as a listing agent is you've got to find out what is the motivation. Because if they're not motivated at all and they want to put themselves 30% above market, don't waste your time. It's absolutely don't waste your time. If they're not motivated, they're not a real seller or what I call a, a must mover. If they're not a must mover, why waste your time with them? 
you'd be better off pursuing two or three other people that need to move than than one big guy because I, in the beginning I thought, oh, if somebody would call me over and they, you know, had put some big price in their house, I thought, oh, I'd love to sell a house for this price, but it's not worth that price. Why? And they want thousands in advertising. Why am I wasting my time with this? So I still fight that today after almost 29 years, and that's really sort of picking picking your business model and picking your your clients correctly because it takes me a lot. I like the challenge of being able to you know, to get the client and get the listing uh, or the buyer. And then sometimes after I get it, I wonder, why did I do that? Do I really want this? <laughs> why did I get myself into this? So I'm, I'm still learning even today, trying to uh, weed out the week. And I just had a good experience the other day where I sort of uh, fired a client before they hired me. How'd that happen? I went on, a, it was a little, one of these people who were very difficult on timing and you could only come at a certain time. And they could only meet at 8.30 at night and, my partner Steve is like, you've been doing this too long. You don't have to go to somebody's house at you know eight thirty or nine o'clock at night if they're this is important. They'll make time for you. Go on the weekend. You know they can come home from work a little earlier. But of course they wanted to come home, see their kids, have dinner, watch the news, and then talk to me. So it's like, okay, I like that plan, but I like it for myself, but not for you. But when when I went over there, I could already tell they were going to be tough. But to cut a long story short. They wanted, the wife had a license, had never sold a house. She wanted a 25% referral fee back to her off the top of an already reduced commission they wanted. And then they wanted me to pay for the staging on top of it. And then they also wanted to price the house about 200000 more than it's worth. So I tried to talk my way through it. And then they mentioned a couple of competitors in my marketplace that they were interviewing. And so that, of course gets my, my guile up. And then of course I want the listing. So I, I'm going in there and finally, when he called me up and I, I asked about the staging, I said, well, you know, I would be willing to participate in some of the staging. I said at a different price. And I said, I'd be willing to reimburse you at the close of escrow, but I'm not going to pay for your staging up front on a, on a high price and a short term listing. I said, this is a recipe for disaster. So I said, I'm happy to do it. So the people called me and they said, well, we're giving you one last chance because this other agent, very prominent in my marketplace, is willing to pay for the staging up front, willing to give me my referral feedback, willing to take it at the higher price. I said, you know what? I said, that agent is an excellent agent, and I wish you the best of luck. I think you should go for it. See what happens if things don't work out. You have my number, and I'd be happy to help you if it doesn't work out, and I'd be happy to show your house if I have somebody for it. And that's it. So end on a good note, because who knows, they might call me back later <laughs> if, if it doesn't work out. But I thought, you know what, this is a recipe for a lot of time wasting and money, upfront money expenditures, and, and, and I don't really have the time for that. So I thought I'd better off focusing my business on, on more positive, realistic people. In retrospect, do you think it would have been better for you to get out earlier? It probably would have. I probably the second I saw that pay for the staging and give me a referral fee, I should have just picked myself up at that listing appointment and said, you know what, I don't think I'm the broker for you, but I really appreciate the opportunity to meet you and ended it right there. But I, I it turned into two meetings with the wife and then a late meeting with the husband and then another phone call with him. So it, it was a lot of extra time that uh, in all honesty, I probably should have cut that off sooner. You're exactly right. Was it an extremely priced home or something that was super attractive to you in some reason that you were willing to invest so much time and effort? The house was, I mean, beautifully redone, and it was a lovely house. It was just they were not crazy overpriced, but at, at this particular house, they wanted a million seven fifty, and it probably should be a million five ninety nine. So I'm already thinking, you know, and the husband said to me in the third meeting, he said, well, I don't want somebody giving me a big number that, you know, I don't want to have to reduce it. And I thought, well, you're going to have to reduce it at this price. So I told him, and then, of course... 
the longer someone lives in their house, I found it over the years, the bigger the lot size gets and the bigger the square footage gets. So they thought their house was 3,500 square feet and, and insisted that it was. And I said the tax rolls show a different number in the in the 2,700 square foot range. But of course, they've added on and it hasn't been reflected properly. So I, I set them up with an appraiser that, that measures, which of course they wanted me to pay for. And I said, no, I think that's your proprietary information. So you can, you can pay for that and that'll be all yours. And of course the house comes out to 3,054 square feet. So they're about 450 square feet off of what they thought their house was. And they're so big into dollar per square foot pricing that I said, well, if, if we extrapolate that out, you know, we're going to need to take about another uh, 200,000 off your house. So I think we're, we're down to 1599. <laughs> they didn't like that uh, formula in reverse. Sounds like you broke into the luxury home market early. You've been doing it a long time. You were following your mentor into that market. You had a lead into that market. Have you been selling luxury homes since the beginning? Not really since the beginning. I mean, my first first house I sold was actually a high price for, for the time in the in the mid-80s. The, the, that first open house that I sat open was a 199 open house that, that sold and I'll never forget, sold in multiple offers for 208. And I was I was the winning bidder on that with my client. And then that client went on to move to Texas, and that client sold that house. I want to say probably seven years later, and I think we sold it. It went from 208, and it went up to about 500,000. So it was a, it, it more than doubled. They did a remodel on it, more than doubled. And a lot of my jumping into that luxury market was actually from from early on clients that between the the rise in prices and and people moving up in their marketplace. A lot of these people were were past clients of mine that might have only been in their house two or three years, and maybe they spent three, four, five hundred thousand, and now they were jumping into the million dollar plus price range. And then what I developed over the years was a circle of referrals from from past clients and some of these business managers that I became connected with through that original connection. And we started, you know, jumping into a much higher price point. I would say probably within it wasn't the first few years, but probably within five or six years of, of getting in the business, I started to jump into the higher price range. Obviously, at the same time, the market was escalating, so that was part of the, the helpful jump was getting the prices to go up. But yeah, and, and I like the, the marketplace, working with those business managers and some of these Hollywood types, you, you might help them. I'm kind of the go-to guy for the San Fernando Valley, so when you're, you know, there's some pretty big-name people that, that live over here, but probably my my biggest sale that I ever made was in 19, what was that, 1999. And I, st- I got referred through a business manager to work with Will Smith and his wife. And everybody's like, oh my God, you're going to me. Of course, they don't come to the office or anything, but everybody says, you're so lucky, you're so lucky when I sold this house. But when I flash back, it was actually a, a two and a half year process. We started out looking in different areas of town, and when we were looking in these properties, they kept saying we want a large, you know, a really large lot. Well, when they're looking in Beverly Hills and those areas, a large lot might be a quarter to a half of an acre. But when I was listening to what they were saying, they were talking about something about what they'd like to have horses. And then I said, well, we can't have, we're not zoned for that in all these communities. So we blew through the west side of town, jumped over to the valley up in the hills. There's some ranch areas in the north part of the San Fernando Valley. We were all over the place. And I finally ended up at their house because I said, I'd like to see how you guys 
Live, if you don't mind, just because that helps me visualize, you know, what you're looking for. And I'd like to see if there's other pieces of furniture in your house that you want to take with you. Oh, yes, we have all these family heirlooms and custom pieces. And so I ended up with all the chaos of the of the nannies and production people and however many people they had living in their house. And they were absolutely jammed into a house with, with four kids of about probably 4,500 square feet, which is large by most people's standards, but with all of these helpers and people and assistants and home offices. I mean, they would, they were bursting at the seams. So I listened to them and I started showing them properties closer to where they were living in the West San Fernando Valley and ended up two years later selling them a, uh, a ranch property on the border of, of Malibu. And this was, this was an $8 million and change house at the time. And uh, I will never forget telling people that they, they, I made 28 trips to this property between looking at it multiple times, boatloads of inspections. I even got to the point where at one point the seller disclosed during it was a 130-acre ranch owned by Bobby Vinton at the time. And the seller disclosed to us in the middle of the deal that, by the way, 30 of the acres were non-contiguous and, and landlocked. I'm like, wait a minute, you're advertising it as a 130-acre ranch, but 30 acres are across somebody else's property that you can't get to. <laughs> so Will, Will and his wife and his business manager said, we found a helicopter pilot, and we would like you to go to the Camarillo Airport, get in this helicopter, and fly over this additional 30 acres, which we've hired a, a service to pinpoint for us, and take pictures of it so we can see what it looks like. And I said, okay. So I go show up at the airport, and the question of the day, there was a little toy helicopter. It was like a tiny little two-seater helicopter that almost looked like it wasn't real. And the pilot comes out. He greets me. He says, oh, are you ready to fly today? And I said, are we going in that? And he says, yes. And I'm a, I'm a little scared of heights. And, and he says, well, I just have one question for you. I said, what's that? He goes, would you like the doors on or off? <laughs> and I said, I think I'd like them on, <laughs> which was a mistake because it was a hot summer day and there's no air conditioning. What did I know? And it was 100 degrees inside the helicopter with a tiny little window. And I'm, I'm sticking a camera out the window trying to get pictures. And we looked at the pictures when I got back. I didn't know what was the top, bottom, front, east, west. I didn't know what the hell I was doing up there. But I took the pictures. They ended up backing out of the deal over that and a few other issues, which I took a deep breath because this was a giant sale. And after all of these trips, they backed out. We looked at a bunch of other properties maybe over the next six months. And then the business manager called us up and they said, you know what, if they take $400,000 off the price, we will come in cash and close in two weeks and, and be done. So I, I crawled back to the listing broker and said, okay, we've, we've got another contender here. By the way, this property had been on the market for probably five years at a much higher price. It started about 16 million or 15 million. So we put the deal together for for $8 million, took the 400,000 off and it closed. And then I ended up selling them another house in the meantime for three and a half million to live in while they tore that 9,000 square foot house down and built a new house that took almost another three years. <laughs> and from them, I ended up with referrals to, to several, uh, well-known kind of minor rap players and actresses and people that were all friends of theirs. And everybody said, oh, yeah, Andrew will take care of you. He spent almost three and a half years with us. <laughs> so, not that all your clients should take that long, but some of those good celebrity stories are good. And I've, I've followed a few of them through through several husbands and, and wives. And <laughs> if you can hold on to at least one side of the family, it's good for business.
Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. One of the reasons that these came about was your connection with business managers. Could you tell us, first of all, for people who don't know, what is a business manager and how do you make connections with them? Very very interesting because in, in our part of town, it's so entertainment industry oriented, even in my San Fernando Valley neighborhood, it's a lot of, we call behind behind camera people or people that you wouldn't recognize their face, but they may be writers, directors, producers, video business, there's so much stuff going on, or, or music engineers, that kind of people. Really, the business manager, my original contact with this secretary that we talked about in the beginning was meeting her husband, the nicest guy, and he, you know, tested me out by saying, you know, oh, you know, I've got a client who's got a condo in Sherman Oaks, you know, for 150000 you know, and, and, you know, he's got it rented out, and they just want to unload it. I forget it was some, you know, actor at the time. And then I did a good job with that, you know, wrote him a nice thank you note. The, the, the business manager in general is really sort of like a, a CPA on steroids, but depending on, on what type of business manager, usually the business manager handles paying all your bills and may also steer them towards investments. But what happens in our area is these business managers usually tend to control the client's life in a good way. So they, they're everything from advising them on house purchases to structuring movie deals or commitments entertainment-wise for whatever type of projects they're working on, but they get paid a percentage of of that client's income. So usually the going rate is something like 10%. So whatever money that client's making, they're pulling in 10%. So these entertainment personalities, if, if you will, whether it's a director, actor, producer, whatever, they're very they're golden to their business manager and a business manager is very protective over that client. So if they're selling them a property, they want to look good by saying, hey, I'm going to find a good agent who's going to find you a really good property and you're going to love it. And if you need to sell it in five years, you know, we're going to make money on it or it's going to be a smooth process. And other business managers started to hear about me or I would even meet other business managers on my listings. And it was interesting. I didn't pursue them. But a lot of them would call me later and say, gee, you know, I, we're working with this agent who doesn't know the San Fernando Valley, and they're obviously too busy, and I really like the way that you represented your client. So our client that bought your listing five years ago from somebody else would now like to sell that house with you. So it's, I've really got a lot of people indirectly meeting other business managers. I like to show up for inspections, especially in that case when I know that the client's business manager, somebody's going to be there, just because I like to to run interference in case anything goes awry. But I also like to meet those people because you never know when that person might say, hey, I'd like to use you for another transaction to help another client. So that worked out well. But that's years in the development. So depending on what part of the country you're in, a lot of these people outside of L.A. and New York, you know, are not going to be dealing with the business manager scenario so much. But you still have, you can take it down to a different level. You've still got your your accountants, your attorneys, your, you know, back east and, and midwest that are dealing with a lot of attorneys instead of escrow companies like we do out here that handle the, the transaction. I think it's very important to, to get to know your your clients' service providers. You know, a lot of my early business was networking with 
not only other agents, but networking with groups in our area that might involve, you know, accountants, attorneys, and my own accountant, my own attorney, I always didn't hesitate to ask for, for business. And I got involved in the early days when I wasn't busy, I got involved with my local chamber of commerce in Studio City, the next town over, and committed about probably 10 years of my life to, to that. I got quite a bit of business from that and also got a nice background for public speaking and coming out of my shell, if you will, in the beginning of my real estate career by becoming on all these volunteer committees. And I started volunteering at one of the local schools, even though I didn't have kids and doing things for them. I became known among the parents at the school, the go-to real estate guy, and people would call me with questions. I got listings and buyers out of that, and it just kind of spiraled from there. The way that you're getting all these referrals is that you're being very involved in your community. You're meeting a lot of people. When you're talking to these people in the committees and the business managers and so forth, are you, are you mentioning to them that you are a real estate agent and directly asking for referrals? Or does it come about more through osmosis, just the fact that you're around? It's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask for the referrals until the end of the deal. I think it's very important, subtly at the end of the deal and even during the deal whether you're working with a buyer or a seller to let them know i always let people know that you know look i'm i'm not going to steer you wrong i've i've talked people out of buying many houses because i knew that i thought to myself wow it happened to me only a couple times in my career where where i sold somebody a house that i didn't feel good about cuz i knew it was not a good house or it was maybe the wrong decision for them and and i didn't say anything for whatever the reason might be i only did that a couple of times and it in both cases, it came back to, to bite me. By They called me back for the listing. I'm like, oh, my God, I, I think that this was a one-shot sale. This house could only sell to one person <laughs> in a lifetime. And it came, comes back. We've all had a couple of those where you're like, oh, my God, they want to sell this house. What are we going to do? You know, Or they paid what for it, and now they want to sell it. You know, So I usually I'll tell people, I'm looking, you're, you're buying it at the peak of the market, and this house is what it is. This house is not going to be any more than what it is right now. So just so you know that you know, if you're going to stay here a long time or – this is your dream house, go for it. But many houses, people have come in and they get so excited about maybe the way it's decorated or by a particular room in the house that they're not seeing the big picture. So I try to direct them and say, look, I'm your, I'm your real estate advisor. I said, it's completely up to you, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out both the positives and the negatives here. And sometimes people will be, usually they'll be like, wow, thank you. I didn't realize that. And I think you're right. You know, we went home and thought about that. And and I think maybe we should go with the other house or maybe we should keep looking. And many, many people have thanked me years later for saying like, oh God, I went to a party at that house we almost bought and oh my God, it's falling apart and, and I hate that neighborhood or you know whatever it might be. Usually it's it, in those cases, it's it's been a very positive return for me, but I don't hesitate to ask for the referral up front by letting people know that, you know, this is my career. I'm in this for the long haul and the, the bulk of my business is from is from referrals, and that's what I appreciate. So you know, if your family or friends need any help, even if it's just to answer questions, that's terrific. I'm, I'm happy I'm there for them. And you know, here's my, my phone and my email. Please have them contact me. And sometimes people will do that because I'm less threatening than some brokers. So I'll come in happy to help them. Or people will say, oh, my mom you know, needs – I just did one recently for a friend of mine from college who's – dad passed away maybe seven years ago and I went and did a, a date of death appraisal for the mom and she was so embarrassed, tried to pay me and I said, no, 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 it's my pleasure. You know, she's almost my neighbor. Went and did that and the mom dropped dead uh, last year and the sister, I mean, my friend's sister is a realtor and the three brothers got together and they said, 
the sister is not listing the house. We're calling Andrew because remember when Andrew helped help mom when dad died, blah, blah, blah. So I went back there and the sister was furious in the beginning, but she ended up being okay with it. And I listed the house with my action plan. The sister thought it should be less than I did. And we ended up selling it for about 200000 more than the sister was going to list it for. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody was very happy in that case. But that was just from a favor that I did seven years ago that came back around and turned into something. So you never know. I, I think if people expect immediate return on those on those favors or, or those, you know, questions for referrals, you just have to keep asking and putting the good the good vibes out there and it and it does come back. It just sometimes will take a long time. If there was an agent listening to us and they wanted to break into the luxury home market in their area, what advice would you give them? You know, the real way that it worked out best for me, it depends. I mean, I I was in early on the game, so I'm, I'm late to the table tech-wise, so I know there's a million methods of putting yourself out there, various sites or whatever, and creating a, an image of, of an expert. But I think for the people that don't may not have the money to spend to create these websites and get into all this stuff, I think, you know, the simplest way to do it is to, you know, find an agent in your office that might have a, a, a luxury home listing that, you know, whether they're having an open house or they're having some kind of activity on that property, that's the way I started. I started holding open houses on these nicer properties. And then I was started to meet the clients that were looking at these properties because they're coming in the door. And that's really how I started as simple as doing open houses on those larger properties combined with my own clients, you know, moving up the scale and, and referrals from their friends. But I think you really just have to put yourself out there. And even if you're not the expert, there's enough information out there online that you can create yourself as an expert with knowledge. So I think these people, the higher you get up in scale and price in any neighborhood, the more they expect you to know. And boy, if they ask you a question, you don't know the answer, you don't know about a house that's sold two blocks away, you're done. So you have to you have to be knowledgeable on everything. So if you're going on an appointment or even taking a buyer out, I found that your credibility increases greatly if you can drive a buyer through a neighborhood and say, oh, see, that one sold two years ago for X price, and they added a second story, and this one, so-and-so lives here. And I got a lot of business just by people feeling comfortable with, oh, wow, you really know your neighborhood. And even even when I'm showing one of my listings, somebody will say, oh, well, this seems high for the neighborhood. And I'll say, well, you know, such and such address, one block over, sold for more than this two years ago, and the market's gone up since then. Just educating educating the public and people on that can, can make you become an expert on, on any price range in your neighborhood. Andrew, let's talk a little bit about marketing and lead generation. I understand that you're sending out mailers that are working well. Could you tell us what you're sending out to who and what your results have been? I'll share it. It's not a trade secret and unfortunately nothing that I made up, but I have excellent success with a mailer that I did where I did something very simple where I just went on to Google Maps and I and I put in addresses of homes that I had sold in, in my market area and I created a postcard where I had a red dot in, in the area on a Google Map which was sort of like a, a printout of, of the neighborhood with basically the cities not really showing the streets per se but shrunken down to just showing the city in the general map area. And so what happened is I took houses that I'd sold maybe in the last 10 years and I put it on this postcard and it basically looked like a map with a million red dots all over the place. And so I just, very simple, I said, these are homes that Andrew Manning has sold in your neighborhood. 
get your red dot today, call Andrew, blah, blah, blah. So kept it very simple, but my God, did I get a great response on that. I, I don't use it all the time, but I bring it out once in a while in different in different market areas. But that was a great res- response from that where people, oh, I love the red dot postcard you sent out because it was so simple, you know, <laughs> doing, doing those things. If you don't have those sales, and I see it all the time with agents and new agents to, to producing agents in my marketplace, it's very, depending on your MLS rules, it's very delicate, but I think you can, you can actually, if you're targeting a certain neighborhood, you can create a, even a flyer if somebody doesn't want to pay postage. I mean, you can create a flyer that you could hand deliver or, or do a bulk rate postage type of a postcard where you can come out and show what recent sales are in the neighborhood. And obviously you have to have a disclaimer and usually depending on the MLS rules, it has to be a certain type face size underneath saying, you know, these are our sales pulled from the from the local, you know, MLS, blah, blah, blah. You can't say, you know, Andrew sells all these houses and they're somebody else's sales, obviously. But if you do that, it also creates the illusion that you were somehow involved in these sales. If you are working with a lot of buyers and you don't have those listings, but you want the listings, you can send out a postcard and say, just sold all these properties and in that same type at the bottom could say, you know, represented, may have represented buyer or seller on these, on these properties. But it's all about just getting your name out there. I think for me, it's been repetition over the years. I started out uh, in an office in the, the town next to Sherman Oaks Studio City. And I used to basically only do Studio City in Sherman Oaks, but the longer I've been in the business, the more my market area has expanded for multiple reasons, and mainly because people move back and forth across the valley and people will will say hey do you do you do calabasas you know it's not my prime market area but of course i can do calabasas and i'll move around out there and really my my big strong point was not going too far because agents i think you start to stretch yourself too thin and somebody says oh they've got a you know a listing for you and it's you know maybe 25 30 miles from your (laughs) market area maybe a completely different mls at that point what i started doing when i started to get a little busier was i started creating relationships with agents on the fringe of my market area on all sides, west side of town, areas that I felt I couldn't cover for the client realistically. And unless it's an empty house and it was an easy sale, but if it was going to involve time and a ton of driving and, and it was really not my expertise, I would either make an arrangement to share the listing with an agent or create a referral fee arrangement rather than try to take the whole thing in myself because I felt it didn't spread me too thin. I got a return on it. I established a a relationship with agents and I have agents in Ventura and Santa Barbara that we refer business back and forth, you know, to this day. And they may be people I've known for 20 years. I remember you mentioning that you generate quite a bit of your business from referrals from other agents. Is this what you're talking about? You've built a network of agents around your market area? Absolutely. And I started when I started going to these conventions, because I think when we when I moved to Prudential, you know, which became Berkshire, when I moved to Prudential, California Realty in 2000, that was when I started going to these national conventions. And then people want you to speak at these things or you're on a panel. And I would meet interesting people and I would collect cards because you never know when you're going to find out somebody's moving to New York or moving to Chicago or, or moving to a neighborhood near you. And I just started keeping in touch with these agents and kind of put them on my mailing list so that they would stay in touch. And, and I have a, 
uh, holiday card list that's that's like a thousand people now that I send out holiday cards to, which are agents and clients and everything together. But I'd keep them on my list, so my name was always in front of them. And then people always would be, oh yeah, call Andrew. He knows that area. Andrew will help you. And so I've gotten dozens and dozens of referrals from these other agents, you know, over the years. I always try to reciprocate when I can, obviously. But it's interesting to to know that when you have an agent out of your area that that knows you as your local expert in that area. It's a wonderful thing because half of these ones could be them referring me to another friend or a friend of a friend. Sometimes the referral is so deep that I have to trace it back and find out where it actually started from because it's not not direct from one person. When you're doing these referrals back and forth between the agents, I assume you're also offering and paying uh, referral fees? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, t- I try to do it reciprocal. I mean, standard in our marketplace is usually somewhere, you know, for a, for a listing referral or a buyer referral, it's usually somewhere in the you know twenty to twenty five percent range. And you mentioned that the way that you're staying in touch with those folks, one of the ways you're doing it, you've been collecting business cards, you built up a database, and you send out a holiday card. Do you do any other type of formal promotion to those folks to stay in front of them? Yeah, what I try to do is I'll do like I used to do with, with with a limited list of them. Sometimes I'll do the you know the some just listed cards. Or now it's become so so email driven that I'll put them on a on a drip list in my email. So when I get a new listing, that same list I'll send out the listing to them. You know, over there. And I think that's just a quick thing to touch on for people that is, that is so annoying for me and a lot of other people. But I think it's super helpful when you're dealing with email as changing your subject line. It sounds so stupid, but I get emails where I'll go try to find an email and there may be a hundred emails with the same subject line I'm trying to figure out. Which was the one that had the lockbox combo or what and you can't find you can't find it in there. So if I'm in there I and I get an email and somebody's just forwarded left the subject, I will erase the subject and change it like answer to your question regarding lockbox location or you know whatever it is so that so that your communication level is sped up and it makes it so much easier. But on the rare occasion when it gets slow some of my best business I've gotten was actually going back to my old emails and going through and being like, whatever happened to her? And she, did she ever sell this house? And how is so-and-so doing? Or, or this lady was sick and wasn't ready to sell her house or whatever it was. I'll go back through those old emails, even a year or two old, and scan through. And it's a gold mine of, of business when you go back through your old emails, just thinking like, oh, I got busy and I forgot about so-and-so. I should check in with them, see what's happening. I'll pick up the phone, give them a call, shoot them an email, whatever. But sometimes I'll, I'll get people say, oh, I was just thinking about you, and yeah, we're, we're getting ready. We think we're going to be ready to, to sell the house in a month, and I'm so glad you called. It reminded me, uh, or, or I lost your email. As dumb as that sounds, it's like when you, when you I, call it, uh, I call it digging for business when I go through the, the old emails because it's unbelievable what's in there. I mean, for the average person, when you go through those emails, you realize people either you forgot to keep in touch with because I'm embarrassed to say I don't have a contact software where I, I should and I've been trying to do it for years where I where I do follow-up programs. I am not as organized as that, I'm, I, I will unhappily admit, but going through the old emails it help, definitely helps to jar my, my memory. And then to prevent having so many emails, I started doing that cloud storage where I would take like, you know, 2011 emails and put them off my computer so your computer moves a little quicker and you can find things easier. I was just about to ask you about your your database of past clients and sphere of influence. And so my first question is, do you have a formal database of past clients and sphere of influence? 
I do. I mean, I have that listed. I'm, it's, I guess I never got into the contact software for the follow-up, which is embarrassing to admit, but, you know, it is what it is. But I, <laughs> I could probably do a lot better if I had better systems and organization as far as the follow-up goes. But, yeah, I do have a separate database for that. What I lost track of in all the computer transitions over the years that I used to do in the beginning, which, which was another goldmine for business, was I used to send a happy anniversary card to my clients, buyers or sellers, when when they bought a new house. The only people that really, if they sold, I didn't sell it, send it to them, but if they sold and then bought a new house, I would send whoever bought the house uh, an anniversary card. And I used to get a ton of business from that. In fact, I'm, I'm just trying to get that organized and started again because I lost track of it about five, six years ago. But I used to just send that and I get more calls like, oh, that was so cute. I, I can't believe it. it's like you remind us we've been here 10 years. And, I'm, and I would sometimes, if they had a sense of humor, I thought, my God, you've been there seven years. That's the average time in California. It's time to move. <laughs> Have you been thinking about moving? I've got somebody that would love your house. That type of thing. And you'll usually get a call from it from big, oh, great to hear from you. No, we're totally happy. We're staying here. We had another baby, whatever it is. But very interesting. That happy anniversary card program got me tons of business over the years. And I guess I embarrassingly got too busy and in the change of computer systems, somehow that got lost in the shuffle about five years ago. But we're in the process of researching that to try to get that fired up again, because you people lose track of you, like, you know, you know, changing companies or whatever. And they'll be like, if you don't keep in contact with your, with your sphere of influence and your past client base, that is the number one source for anybody, I think. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? I've got about a thousand people right now that are on my list. Somewhere, I think I think the cards I sent out at the holidays last year were probably, I think it was about just over a thousand. And that's very interesting because by doing that at the holidays, I always try to do it right after Thanksgiving so you don't get lost in the shuffle of everybody coming in at the last minute. But I, I've noticed that the actual physical receipt of, of holiday cards over the last few years has dropped dramatically because so many people are just sending an email or whatever. I still believe in that sending of the card thing. And I use a service, I know there's a million out there, but I use a service called Always Keep in Touch, which you, you can go online, design your own card and I have my assistant go online and, and we design one for my sphere of influence and one for past clients and one for personal. And, you know, to do over a thousand people, I'm not, you know, hand signing cards anymore, but I, I go out there and I do it at a click of a button. It's done. I don't have to start stacking and sorting and putting address labels and all that stuff we did. We did long ago. It's super easy and deductible. I put it on a credit card. It's online. You click a button, the whole thing's done, postage sent, it's finished. So I still like that idea because people are getting less personal mail these days. And I still like that personal touch of, of having somebody open up a, a card as simple as it is. I mean, the e-cards are nice, but it gets you know old and we all get hundreds of emails a day. So you know, I don't think that has the same personal touch for for sphere of influence and clients. Nothing wrong with emails during the year, but at the holidays, I'd, I'd like to do that. And I always get probably four or five deals a year, at least from sending out those cards. Do you have a formal marketing plan for the folks in your database? Do you go out to them with something beyond the holiday card throughout the year? You know, I don't. I should. I, it's very informal. I think what I do is I just basically, I try to, I try to keep touch with the, the sphere of influence and the past clients three to four times a year. So 
So I usually with the same program, they will have, I'll send out, you know, usually like a 4th of July thing, a holiday thing for sure. And then at least one other time during the year, I'll send something out. If I, you know, I keep track of everybody's birthday because I'm a big birthday person. So a lot of times that will include, if it's been a pleasant experience, I try to find out their birthday, I'll send a birthday card as well, you know, with nothing, no mention of real estate, just me and, you know, company name, but not searching for business just as a, as a touch and a reminder. People like that, you know, people still, the same kind of thing, nobody's getting birthday cards anymore. Either they get an email or a Facebook message if you're lucky. Andrew, let's talk about your team real quick. Could you tell me the folks on your team? To back up a second too, because I know we, we spoke offline about my, my good friend, Stephanie Fataco, who you inter- interviewed, and she was actually, we were at the same company for years, and she was actually instrumental in getting me to hire my first assistant because I was I was always the last one. I was in the office till 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, you know, hand-sticking labels on mailers, you know, trying to, trying to look up properties, you know, door knocking. I did everything. I tried everything once in the beginning. But she said, you've got to get somebody to help you with this little stuff because I was really exhausted. I wasn't, I was doing okay, but I wasn't doing the kind of business that I was putting the hours in for. And so she actually convinced me to, to hire my, my first assistant. And I, and I find for people that are looking to take their business to the next level, um, what I didn't do in the beginning and, and learned from it was you really want to hire somebody who's not exactly like you just because you get along because you're so similar you really want to hire somebody who might not be exactly like you who's who's strong in your weak points to support you and somebody who is a self-starter takes direction you know because people in the beginning they think they're going to train somebody I mean I'm at the point I don't have time to train anybody so when I have people working for with me that they have to know what they're doing and then I can direct them in the beginning but the team that I have now I'm a wonderful woman that's been with me for for seven years, Robin, and she is my kind of my administrative assistant marketing director. Basically, what she does is she is just wonderful. I mean, she'll get up at six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, do an initial scan of of emails and see what's come in during the night or the early morning. And she will, if it's something that requires my immediate attention, she'll put a red flag on it. If it's something she can answer, she answers it copies me and it has that, you know, return arrow on it so I can go into the sent mail and see what she said. You know, we and we have a in-house code. So to, to get the email straightened out, you know, if she does an email and does it as me, she will, she will sign it best Andrew. And if it's my own personal email, it's fine. Thanks, Andrew. So just so you know what you're getting, but <laughs> industry <laughs> secret, but, but yeah, that's our personal code. So I'm like, if I go back in there, I'll go, Robin, you send him this message. And she goes, I don't think I did that. Yes, you did. It says best Andrew. So, oh yeah, you're right. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll do that, but she will answer, you know, the, the, the not necessarily the less important, but the things that she's knowledgeable about so I think it's important to you know to to try to work with licensed you know people and the people that I have working for me I had two people until recently that were terrific both licensed both agents but people that did not want to work as an agent they just preferred to have those hours but one that I have now and the one that left recently very supportive both long-term people both you know with me for seven years which is a, a miracle in, in our business I'm not uh, you know a horrible boss or person to work with so we're in the process of just taking on a new person right now to replace her. Our one that left that would be more of the second person would be more of a transaction coordinator. 
and chill in person because our our days are so crazy with with real estate you never have you know it isn't like working a bank job or coming in on a nine to five where you have the same thing to do every day i mean it's it can be crazy and exciting and, and nerve-wracking all at the same time but i said but we never have a boring day in real estate so these people everybody my job with anybody that's working in our office is everybody needs to know how to do the other person's job so that if somebody's at lunch or somebody's out sick I don't want anybody sitting there going, I don't know how to order, do a home inspection. I don't know how to input this information in the computer because it's not my job. I mean, that's how it started when I went from one to two assistants. Everybody wanted to do their own job, and I'm like, no, no, no. This is your primary focus, but you need to be able to step in here should that person be out because the worst thing you can do is like, oh, that's not my department. I'll have to take a message and have Robin call you back. No, you need to be able to answer that person and, and get the information quickly and keep the chain moving fast. So I think, I think that's so important. So what my, the team that I have, it's really just me as the agent, but the team that I have, I've got Robin, who's, who's admin and marketing, had Roger before, but he's works part-time but moved out of the area, so he comes in and substitutes for us. But we have another lady coming in as a transaction coordinator and sort of assistant to Robin in that business. Then I have my, my life partner, Steve, who's been a broker for 38 years, and he is what we call our fill-in. So he likes to do everything that's that's sort of from our house and west because we have a major freeway that divides very close to our house and it's very hard to get to our office. It's only five miles away, but it could take 20 plus minutes to drive to the, to the office and in traffic. So he he is also our sort of in-house stager designer and we'll bring him over like we did a photo shoot last night that was maybe two and a half hours at a at a big house and he was lighting fireplaces and moving furniture and and you know, doing stuff that a lot of people don't do just to make it look as good as it possibly can. And the sellers love that because they feel like they have their own, you know, design team built in there. So he's very helpful with showings. Also, we call him head of conflict resolution because I'm, I'm the nice guy. So if somebody gets a little out of hand or if they're getting tough and don't want to reduce their price and something needs to happen or they don't want to get back money on an inspection and it's justified, we, after meeting Steve, we jokingly say, I think we're going to have to have Steve call you and then half the time, oh, no, no, don't have Steve call. That's no, no problem. We'll do whatever you say. Because <laughs> he's super direct and they're like, oh, don't have Steve call. Well, that's okay. We'll, we'll give him the 5,000. Don't worry about it yet. <laughs> so, so that works very well to my advantage. I'm like, I guess I think I'm going to have to have Steve call you and do it. Oh, no, 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 no problem. No, fine. We'll do whatever you say. It's okay. Yep. Steve, Steve's, Steve's very strict with us. I'm like, he's strict because he's real. Steve will say, you know what? I'm not doing this to, you know, just to sell your houses. I'm doing, you, I'm trying to tell you what's right for yourself. You need to get out of your own way and this is what you need to do and we're here to help. And usually, you know, sometimes people will, will be turned off by that and we'll have to, we'll have to call them off. But usually it's just the right amount after, after my sort of, friendly firm attitude and he comes in that's usually a nice balance because people will will see it as a direct you know not a confrontation but they'll see it as a as a direct uh, point of advice so they'll be like okay i see what you're saying you're right you're right andrew's been telling us that but we're not hearing it so sometimes coming from somebody else who's experienced and involved and it means something more so it sounds to me if i were to do a quick outline you've got a buyer agent administrative assistant also marketing showing agent transaction coordinator and yourself as the team leader. Is that sound about right? You got five people there? That's about right. Well, a lot of these people, it's really probably, I think it's, it's probably four because I have, I have a young guy in, in the office who I'm mentoring somewhat, but 
really I have him on board. He has his own business. He's not really you know part of our team, but but he is on on many things. And we have uh, you know developed a nice business in the last couple of years where we're working with a lot of developers and spec builders and people where he he is a real go getter where he is ultra tech savvy and he jumps online like the second these properties come out he sends them to me I analyze them tell him what I think it's going to be worth you know now and when it's redone I send it to him and to about one of maybe a dozen different people that we have in our back pocket and shop these deals out so we've managed to in the last couple years probably done about 10 deals and we have three or four new construction homes coming up as a direct result of this connection. And I, and I did make a connection with somebody who approached me, which was a, a really interesting quick side note with a guy who's, who did a, a metrics plan where he figured out the agents that were doing the business in neighborhoods and the started in Northern California. And he approached me and he said, hey, I work with five or six different developers who've hired me to find the agents that are doing the business in these neighborhoods. And you bring me these deals and I shop them to my clients and then you give me a 15% referral fee and he's an agent. You give me a 15% referral fee and then and and I will turn these guys over to you 15 on the way in and 15 on the way out which I'm happy to pay. So that's how this thing started but in in that regard several people have approached me directly in my market area and it was really too much for me to to handle on my own and to really keep on top of properties that are coming on the market along with my regular business. So so I brought Chris on board with this, and he's absolutely terrific, super smart, young guy with a you know with a baby and motivated and ready to go. So he jumps in there, calls me, we strategize. You know, we're on the phone at at ten thirty at night sometimes when the baby's asleep and when things are quiet for me, and we're strategizing on you know who we're going to call about these properties, and we review emails and send out an email to maybe ten different potential buyers. And I said, look, you can't wait for one buyer to respond, you know, in that type of a marketplace with developers. So we probably have seven, eight, ten different people that we'll send it out to. And of those people, five of them will nix it because they always think it's not a good enough deal, but maybe three or four of them might be interested and it'll probably boil down to one or two. So there's been a case where I've written an offer, he's written an offer, and one of us one of us ends up selling it and we end up with a turnaround, you know, deal down the road. So that's it's a nice repeat source of business. Are you profitable? I think we are. You know, it's, it is expensive to run a big business. I mean, and, and that whether your business is you're making a hundred thousand a year or a million dollars a year, it's it's very expensive to run it. And I think there's always ways to run it more efficiently. I think one of the ways that we become much more efficient is by really cutting back on our print advertising and really focusing more on the online media and and on good photography and on you know old fashioned networking because that's how in our market area that's how these houses are selling. You know, so I think for people, people to run out. When I first started doing this and trying to sell big properties, and we were taking out full-page ads in our local magazines, I do a, a full-page ad in that Ventura Boulevard magazine, which is kind of a prestigious local magazine that I get a lot of response from. That's 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 probably my most expensive media output because that costs about nine hundred dollars a month. But you know, there's several competing agents in my marketplace that do the same thing. And of that little magazine, more people have seen that magazine than, than read the Los Angeles Times that see your name in the paper. I mean, it's amazing. Like, oh, I saw your ad. And I'll get emails and people calling, oh, I saw your great ad in you know, Ventura Boulevard magazine. It was like, it's, more people see that <laughs> magazine than anything else. So that's been very helpful to me, more from a recognition standpoint. But what I also use that for is for those people that are still locked into you know wanting to see their house in print. I do a color ad and I might feature 
a few properties, you know, that month and call it featured listings of the month within my ad. So it's sort of a two-tone, it's sort of a personal ad and a, and a market ad. But, you know, my, my favorite description in our market area was in 2005, the Los Angeles Times San Fernando Valley section was routinely 62 pages long on a Sunday, always 62 pages. The 62 pages are now 12 every week. So that's, that's the most dramatic point of print advertising. There are only 12 pages in that section now. <laughs> and on the holiday weeks, sometimes it evaporates, you know, it disappears. So that cost of advertising has, you know, has gone down quite a bit. And yes, when I do open houses, I still do print ads with open in the newspaper. I do the online campaign. I think your your local MLSs are, are very good at promoting open houses. And I think doing the, the other advice I have is w- w- with these programs that are, that are not too expensive for doing e-marketing, the most important thing you can do on that is back to, to the subject matter because with all the emails we're getting, you cannot send out an email that says great new listing. Most people aren't going to open it up if they're any kind of dizzy at all. They're not going to open that up. It's got you've got to have specific titles in your email, like "Wonderful Sherman Oaks Pool Home with View." You know, something specific that's going to make somebody open that up if they should have a client. I mean, you can't just put these generic emails out there like "Great Property," "Amazing Condo." It's like it's, unless you're in a very tiny market area, you're you're going to lose more than half your audience by not having the correct subject matter. Andrew, would you mind disclosing to us what your net profit margin is? I would say, you know, I'd probably have to ballpark it, but I would probably say, I would say I probably spend, I would say at least 20% of, you know, maybe 25% of the income is probably between staff and marketing and presentation and photography, all that stuff. I probably put back a good 25% in from there. I don't know if that's average or or too high or too low, but I'm just ballparking. So you think about 75% is coming out as profit? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm really careful about about that stuff and putting money and putting money away. It doesn't mean that I don't spend. I mean, my, my philosophy has, has been for years. I mean, I'm, I work seven days a week. It's very hard for me to take a day off. I, I like taking a day off is very difficult. Like I have to take at least two or three days off before I can wind it down, <laughs> so to speak. So I've done for years, you know, it started to be, uh, 10 years ago, I started, it started to backfire me because Brokers started to use that against me and say, oh, Andrew, he's always on vacation. He's always, he's been all over the world, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was all true, but I mean, I would work very hard and I, unless, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to, to be able to go all over the world, which is kind of my, my passion is travel. So I, I would do that and I think it's a great experience, but boy, I would block out maybe two, two week trips a year and a few little things in between. But then a couple of those years, things were going great. I mean, I had a, an amazing that 2013 year, which was my best year, I think I was out of town probably at least two months of that year, if not more. <laughs> Spread out, but but it was a big birthday year, and I thought, oh my god, I went to Africa for three weeks. And I was, I'm like, but I that was the only time when I was that far away that I didn't work. But anytime I'm out of town, I'm constantly on the email. I'm calling clients back. I'm I'm doing everything unless I'm really in some remote place. But for the last year or so, I knocked that way down because it just got to be too much too much to travel and work and, and do all that stuff. So I've, now I've calmed it down and tried to stay a little more local. But this year we're taking a year off from international travel and concentrating on, on business. Andrew, what drives you? For real estate, I love the, the income potential, but I really do love the matchmaking process of, of, you know, if I have a 
if I have a listing, you know, and, and I'm immediately figuring I'm matching this up with the right buyer and what agents do I know that would have the right buyer and I'm fascinated with that sort of jigsaw puzzle of putting it all together. That's that's always been, you know, fascinating for me. When I started working with buyers, I would I tried to find out as much about that buyer as I could. And I would take them and show them, I don't care. I learned long ago that these buyers tell you, oh, I want a, you know, a three-bedroom Cape Cod. That's all I'm interested in. I don't want a pool. And then you find out they bought a you know, contemporary with a pool from somebody else because I'm, I'm never afraid to show somebody something that I think they might like, even though they're not saying they would like that. So I'm keeping my mind open in that matchmaking process with buyers and with sellers is the same kind of thing with these sellers. I'm always honest with them by saying, you know, some of these houses that I sell are, are highly unique. And I, I put that up front in the beginning and say, you know, we're really looking for the tip of the pyramid type of buyer here. We're looking for somebody that's going to pay the price you want for this house as unique and as special as it is. But this is not an everyday house, so it may take the right buyer, you know, for your property. So I try to set them up in the beginning so they're not expecting that I'm coming in at X price and it's going to sell the first week. And most people are realistic on that, but I like to set the expectations right away. But I'm very driven by my reputation, probably number one, keeping my a good reputation because that's what, what I'm known for and that's what I, I pride myself on is, is ethics and being known as kind of the go-to guy in the area and, and somebody who's not only nice, but knowledgeable, respectful, and, and kind of an agent agent in the deal. My my philosophy is if I have a transaction with another agent that best friend during the process, I try as hard as I can to not be adversarial. I don't have a, a gigantic ego in the in the escrow process, which I think a lot of agents I know take everything so personal and, and a lot of the agents get in the way of their own transactions, whether they're working with a buyer or a seller, they get so defensive or angry with the other agent it becomes a battle between the agents and really my philosophy is, you know, if another agent says, oh, are you going to get angry if my client asks for them to fix the roof? Is it, I'm not going to get angry. It's not my house. I can ask for whatever I want. The seller might not like it, but, you know, I'll work with you. You know, let's do what you need to do and, and we'll try and work it out. But everybody's like, oh, you're such a pleasure to work with here. You know, you really tried to make the deal. You did everything possible you could, you know, All that type of philosophy so that when people are showing my listings, all the time I'll get from agents, oh, Andrew's great to work with her. Even if it's between two houses, I have had agents that actually will steer their buyer towards my listing, knowing that it'll be easier to work with me potentially than, than another agent on a different property. So that's, that's great to have that kind of a, a reputation. And that's what really drives me is keeping my reputation up there and, and know that there's really nothing bad that anybody can say about me. Andrew, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I think the first thing is know your market area, and that's the most important thing is knowledge. I mean, you may not have made one sale, but if you know your market area and you know not only who's making the sales, what they're selling for, what the basic notes are on on those transactions. So you might know that a certain area might be prone to flooding, know that a certain area might have geological issues, you know, know that a certain street, the bus comes down that street, or you can hear the school bell ring from this backyard. I mean, the littlest stuff will create you as a, an expert in your, in your market area. And I think it's so important for you to have that knowledge so that whether you're working with a buyer or seller, the more knowledgeable they think that agent is, the more trusting they will be of that agent and the more business they'll be willing to, to put your way. And I, in the beginning, I did everything. I mean, I, I tried everything once I knocked on doors. I, you know, I, I, I was very shy in the beginning and 
probably shouldn't say this, but we, I got on the line one day and there was a very gregarious agent in the office and she was there and she's like, I, I, I get all my business cold calling. And I'm thinking, oh my God, cold calling. Who's going to pick up the phone and call people? You know, this is the 80s. So she goes, I think we're going we're gonna to get a bottle of champagne and order a pizza and then we're going to start cold calling. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so we sat there at a couple of glasses. Anyway, first person I call, and I said, if you're cold calling, which not that I'm recommending or not recommending this, but but I decided I can't just call people and say, hey, do you want to sell your house? And so I decided that I would pick a certain area. So I picked a certain area around a local park that I where I was in. And I actually had a client, a new buyer that I met at an open house that wanted to live near this park. So I thought, well, I'm just going to pick up the phone and call all the houses around the park. So I we did that with the, with the cross directory at the time, the old-fashioned phone book. And this woman, Katie, and I, we sat there in the office and couple of were laughing, loosened up, having our pizza, calling, and literally maybe the first or second person I called, I said, hi, it's Andrew Manning. It was Fred Sands Realtors at the time, and I said, I understand, you know, I can see that you live very close to the Sherman Oaks Park, and I actually have a client that's looking for a house, and, you know, not to bother you, but I was just curious had you ever thought about moving, because I have a client that would love to in your neighborhood. Dead silence on the phone, and the woman says, who told you? I said, what? She says, who told you I was thinking of son? My husband and I were just talking in the bedroom last night before we went to sleep that, you know, our baby seems to be allergic to something in this neighborhood and, you know, we're thinking about selling the house. I was like, really? And she says, when can you come over? Can you come over tomorrow? I'm like, uh, yeah, I can come over tomorrow. So make an appointment. She looks at me. We, we go over there the next day signed the listing on the spot and we sold a house of like 285,000 at the time. It was like a whirlwind. I didn't know what hit me. And then back to the story about the top agent in my office, they were her clients. I never even asked. <laughs> they didn't say anything. I didn't ask. <laughs> Suddenly I put it up on the sales board and she says, that house on Catherine, she says, were, were their names, you know, Becky and Sam? I said, yeah. She goes, well, those are my clients. I said, they are? I said, they never mentioned anything about it. And she says, oh, you know, then she gets very puffy and she's and she's well I know a lot of things about that house but I I, I won't tell you because you'll have to disclose them <laughs> bitter party of one but you know <laughs> it was it was very very funny but yeah that was the first probably the first and the last time I cold called because I was so stunned you know I was like my god we got a listing you know so I didn't really do it since then knocked on doors I mean I did everything from from riding on roller skates with a ski pole and, and putting flags on people's lawns you know at fourth of July I mean I, I think I'm still sore from that but all, I tried everything once because I think people that are new, you have to find your niche because certain people are going to be excellent at open houses. Certain people, I find big agents today, don't even touch listings. You know, They may have an occasional listing, but they are great working with buyers. They love working with buyers. For me, I like buyers when they're kind of a warm referral or, or a past client, but I don't search out buyers. So if it's a referral from an agent or something, I'm happy to do it. And I, I keep a very limited pool of buyers, so I might have four or five buyers at a time or less. My main focus is marketing and, and listings. That's what I felt my niche was. And I, and I love writing the blurbs. I used to, used to write the blurbs for agents in the office in the days when you would just have photos. There were a couple of ladies that did a lot of business, but you know, weren't creative and I was always a good writer. So they would show me the, the Polaroid pictures at the time and I would write the, uh, I would write the blurb on the on the listings and write their whole ad for them and half the time they come back and say my god the, the seller felt you really captured the the entity of this house i've never even been in the house i just saw the pictures of it and i'm like okay well, well, well here it is here's your blur but they would pay me 50 bucks and i'm in the beginning i was great that was that was my fun money <laughs> i paid utilities on that money in the beginning <laughs> andrew do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with mastermind agent are valuable 
I think it's great because, you know, I'm always happy to, to share with people. You know, people are welcome to, to ask questions. I get, I get agents in other companies, my own company, you know, coming up to me or, or asking me if they have problems with a deal or, or want advice or something. I'm very happy to help. And I think I like to listen to them myself because I like to hear what people are, are doing in different marketplaces and, and, you know, what's working and what's not working for people. Because I find, you know, I don't care how big of an agent you are, you can always learn from, from people. And I think in the beginning, what I did, I went to every seminar, every thing I could get my hands on, especially the ones that were free. And I found I pulled a little bit of something from everybody I heard speak. So, and I and I use that in my business today. I have little little snippets from probably a dozen different different seminars and speakers I've been to, and I still go to them occasionally. I, I speak at a lot of them, but I like sharing with people, and I enjoy you know the exchange of information and, and ideas all the time. I love it. Well, Andrew, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? The real estate, it's, it's, it is really a crazy business. I mean, people say, you know, I, I talk to people all the time, oh, my God, I so love what I do. I mean, my, my favorite story recently was I had a client that told me, God, you are so amazing at what you do. I bet if you won $25 million in the lottery, you would keep working. And I'm, and I'm like, as much as I love real estate, I probably wouldn't. But <laughs> we, we had a good laugh over it. I'm like, I think that $25 million, that's my number. Yeah. I thought, yeah, we cracked up over that and had a good time. But I think for people that are getting into it, you have to be – I don't consider it a part-time business and I never thought I could do it part-time and I found that out in the beginning that if you're really serious about it, it's a full-time business because you can't, you can't help people part-time. I just found that a very difficult philosophy. I don't know too many successful agents that are doing it part-time. I find that the most important thing that you can have, whether you have no business or whether you're trying to get business, is, the, is getting time management systems and organization and that's something that I fight to this day after almost 29 years into it. It's so difficult. I, I find myself constantly running, you know, 10 to 15 minutes late everywhere I go. So I'm, I used to be 20 and I'm getting it down to about 10 this year, but I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to get things on track. You know, I find myself constantly going, I'm running 10 minutes late, running 10 minutes late, because you get so bombarded with stuff. But I think the time management is so important and focus, because if you really want to be successful in this business, I don't care where, what market area you're in, you've got to focus in on a neighborhood, a niche, a specialty, create something that works for you. I mean, if you really like working with those buyers, then go for it. If you're great on open houses, then do an open house every Saturday and Sunday if you want. That's how you're going to meet people by being out in the streets. If you don't have any business, you've got to put yourself out there. When you start getting the business, and I think when you start to get a little busier, you have to learn to focus on people. Like just because someone refers you a buyer, that buyer may not be a real buyer. They may be an unrealistic buyer. Really try to focus on the people that are, are what I call the must movers, people that have a need to move. So you want to pre-qualify your buyers and your sellers to know that your time is well spent working with, with the right people. And really from the beginning, you're grooming that person to be a client for life and you're grooming that person to be a referral source for life. So you really have to be on your best behavior, I, I think, at all times and, and have that person know that you are working for them and you have their best interest in mind. So I, I know everybody says, oh, I'm available 24-7. I mean, you, you can't be available 24-7 realistically. You have to set those boundaries with people and say, look, I'm available at these times. If something's really serious, text me, call me, whatever. But you've got to set up your relationship with each client 
special so that you know what they expect from you and vice versa and really define your business and know how much business you want to do. There may be people that are fine selling five houses a year. If you're fine selling five houses a year, that's great. Then make that your goal and, and go for it. But if you're trying to sell 25 or 50 houses a year, you have to run your business a little differently. I didn't get to my favorite story where the where the dead dog picked the buyer, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the dead dog picked That'll the be buyer. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. man! We, we just, I had a séance one time where the uh, where the the woman had, we had to come over at ten o'clock at night with an offer and show it to her, and she was a director and and. She wanted to meet the buyers. She she had a wine and cheese and and like charcuterie spread for us. It was like ten o'clock at night. We did a prayer circle. She she wanted to pray and she said, you know, there's someone very special in my life. His name is Henry and and he's the one who really has to decide if you're the right buyer for this house. And you know when when he passed away and I'm thinking when he passed away, when he passed away, I climbed to the to the, the base camp of Mount Everest and I was going to spread his ashes. But when I got there, I knew there was a great Greater purpose and 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 you know it wasn't time yet, so I kept the ashes. So I'd like to bring them into the room. And I'm like, what? So she brings in this wooden box. We put it on the floor. We're all holding hands. The other agent and I, who was a friend of mine, we're looking at each other like, is she nuts or what? We're holding hands we're into this prayer circle, and she says, everybody would just close your eyes and and drain your your mind of all negative thoughts, and and we're going to allow Henry to speak to us. I'm like, so we sat there. What seemed like an eternity. It was probably five minutes. And she opens her eyes, she says, congratulations, the house is yours. Andrew will call my manager in, in the morning, and you can all let yourself out. I'm quite tired. Enjoy the wine, and just close the door behind you when you're done. <laughs> well, it was like a Thursday night at 1130 at night. We're all sitting there exhausted with, with the wine and cheese. And so then we see the box with Henry, and on the box is a Polaroid of this German shepherd. It was her dog. <laughs> the dog decided who was going to get the house. <laughs> Well, Andrew, you know how to tell a story. Communication is key for success in sales. You shared how you went from being a shy teenager to a gregarious adult by working with the public and challenging yourself. Your friendly approach to complimenting other agents to their clients and cooperating during negotiation has built your stellar reputation. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 313 homes last year worth $52 million. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. 
Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.